The following is session three of an ongoing teaching series taught by Reverend Stephen Stacks entitled Christianese, Understanding the Words of Our Faith. This session focuses on the word faith and the biblical meaning of that word. Uh, we have one more session uh, next Sunday, December 8th at 9.30 in the Fellowship Hall at Greenwood Forest Baptist Church. If you enjoy this session, I hope you'll join us next week. All right, y'all. Welcome. Welcome back. Good to see everybody. Thanks for coming out in the rain. Those of you who are in town for this, I hope you had a good um, week uh, with whoever you were hanging out with, um, or by yourself, if that was your, what you did. Um, so today we're going to talk about faith, a ubiquitous word, a word that it both means something specific in um, the Bible, but also we use to mean our entire religion, right, the Christian faith. So it's a, it's a super, um, it's a broad word, but uh, I'm going to argue today that we have uh, narrowed its meaning um, quite a bit uh, in our current kind of understanding, um, and we need to kind of recover some of the broader meanings of what the word means in order to really understand what scripture is talking about when it's talking about faith. Um, before we get going into uh, faith, I just want to, again quickly review the first two sessions because they kind of build on each other. So, um, Session one, we talked about sin. Um, we talked about uh, how people replace the language of sin um, or our scriptural language, our theological language with other models, including the medical model and the legal model, uh, which Barbara Brown Taylor talks about in her book um, that I cited in that session. And then what I added to it was the educational model, which is, you know, people do bad stuff because they're ignorant and they just need to be educated. Um, none of these are an adequate replacement for our language, I would argue. Sin, repentance, salvation, etc. Um, sin's also a more complex concept than some of us give it credit for. It's not just, um, you know, disobeying uh, laws of God or whatever. Simplistic definition is much bigger. It's an attempt to describe a reality that is universal to the human experience. This um, alienation and separation we feel from each other and from the divine and from creation. And then we finish that day uh, with kind of a new definition of sin, which is living out of the illusion that we are separate from God and each other, living in denial of your own or someone else's identity as a bearer of God's image and alienation from the source of love and goodness for which you were created. And then last week we talked about salvation. Um, and we talked about how salvation is more than going to heaven when you die. It is, according to the Bible, about this life and not, the ne not just about the next. It's about, it's bodily and not just spiritual. It's political and communal, not just personal and individual. It's cosmic not just about human beings. God's salvation is for the whole cosmos. And one thing that I didn't mention is that that word in Scripture, for instance, when John says, for God so loved the world, that word in Greek is cosmos. Um, translators have chosen to say world, oftentimes because the original authors only understood all that was created as the earth, but really what they meant was everything that God has made. Um, so it's kind of a trans, you know, a translator decision that I don't really agree with. I think um, 
David Bentley Hart, who I talked about a little bit last time, just did a new translation of the New Testament that was supposed to recover kind of some of um, the strangeness of the language of the Bible that we kind of flatten a little bit in English translation. And he chooses cosmos when he says, so for God so loved the cosmos. And every time the Bible says world, that's the word. Um, and again, you can choose to think that they're using that more limited vision of they're just talking about this planet. Or you know, what, what they really mean is creation. Um, different biblical authors emphasize different things about salvation and different paths to it. So we talked a little bit about how the Gospels, um, the Synoptic Gospels and John have different pictures of what salvation is and how to get it. Um, especially Matthew and Luke are very concerned with your actions, what you do. I mean, this is where we get the famous Matthew 25 parable from that we like to quote a lot. Uh, we like to quote the, um, you know, we have to quote the bad side of people we don't like. <laughs> I was hungry and you didn't feed me. And we like to think of ourselves as the people who Jesus says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was a prisoner and you visited me, etc. Um, but, you know, stepping aside from that, uh, the whole parable seems to indicate that you have to do stuff in order to be considered a sheep instead of a goat in that parable. Um, whereas, you know, John is much more concerned with what he says believe, what he calls belief, which we'll talk about in a minute. For whosoever believes. Okay. Um, so the Bible isn't very clear. It doesn't, you know, despite what the tracts say. Simple plan for salvation. Step one, two, three, four. Uh, the Bible isn't that clear. Um, and then we ended with uh, a kind of broader definition of salvation, which is experiencing the wholeness that God intends for us in all of creation. Wrong being made right, the reversal of that alienation we talked about, we talked about the sin. Um, we may not experience this completely until the next life, but God's goal is to save the world, not take us away from it. And that is very clear in scripture, that God's intention is to come here and save the world, and we're about to start talking about that in Advent. Um, the new Jerusalem comes down to here, not the other way around. And then lastly, in the last five minutes of last week, <laughs> I rapid fire had you read a bunch of scriptures and threw out there the idea that maybe everyone is going to get saved in the end. And I acknowledge fully that that's a very complex thing to kind of bring up and then say, all right, time to go. Um, <laughs> so... I wanted to actually just like pause before we get going into faith this morning um, and see if anybody had any questions about that and also maybe read one more passage that I think is kind of interesting in regards to that. So if, if you remember, I listed off a bunch of passages and most of, the point of most of them was that God intends for all to be saved. Um, and that is all over scripture. Um, and there's a couple passages that we have used to construct our entire understanding of what we call hell, which are much vaguer, not clear at all, um, and, and often metaphorical. 
but those passages that talk about all being saved are pretty clear. God intends for everyone to be saved. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, etc., etc. Um, I don't have the answer to this question, of course, because I am still here. Um, however, uh, to answer what Sandra Philbeck asked me afterwards, which was, do you think everybody's going to be saved? I do. I do think that God gets what God wants in the end. And I do believe that God's love overrides our ability to resist it in you. But, what were you about to say? I was just going to say, that's a left. I remember the passage that we had not long ago about Father Abraham and Hill and the poor man and the rich man. Yes. That's a pretty descriptive version. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the poor man and Lazarus parable is one of the few passages that kind of um, people point to as uh, right. Um, again, that passage is a parable. So we start with that, and knowing how Jesus taught in parables, it's kind of like, all right, if we're going to use this to construct our entire understanding of the afterlife. We might run into problems with that. However, at the same time, what Jesus pictures in that parable is not what we typically talk about. When he's talking about the bosom of Abraham, he's talking about, uh, you know, a separation where, uh, and, and if we want to say that, you know, the poor and mistreated are the, pe the only people who are going to be in heaven and everybody else is going to, I mean, that's a different understanding of what's going to happen than most Christians have, right? So my point is that the passages, the few, that, and there are three or four. Um, that give us a picture of that. And Jesus often talks about separation um, in his parables. There's the parable of the wedding feast where those will, you know, without clothes will be kicked into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says things like that where there's going to be, you know, some kind of, that, that there will be a judgment is not in question. Yeah, so... So, you know, I know the intention is great, but individuals have to respond. Right. And I would say yes, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, the question is, do people have the opportunity, do okay, humans, do souls have the opportunity to respond after what we understand is this life? And that's what I was talking about, um, the picture of the heavenly city where it says the gates will never be closed. Um, which indicates maybe there's some possibility there. Yes, and that is t that has been the kind of. Um, Sorry, that, that was like right to I didn't hear what you said back there, but uh, yeah, that is the question that always comes up. What about? Hitler. I mean, that's like kind of our example of the worst person who ever lived. Um, you know, how is it just? How is it right for Hitler to enjoy what we picture as heaven in the end? Um, let me use that as a transition point. If I could, I'm bad at my Bible drill this morning. Um, I'm going to read for you First Corinthians chapter three. Verses 13 through 15, I think. 
Yeah. And it says, the work of each builder will become visible for the day, capitalized, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, etc., will disclose it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. What do you think that means? several passages that kind of insinuate that, you know, kind of the more we cultivate eternal life here, you know, the more that compounds in the next life, sure. Um, you know, that passage is one of the passages that uh, Catholicism has used to construct the doctrine of purgatory, um, which Baptists typically kind of toss out out of hand. But then when you read that, you think, well, um, I don't have the answer to this question, but what I'm saying is I do believe in judgment. Um, so to, to the point about, you know, we'll, we'll put Hitler aside and just talk about unjust people. Um, I do believe in judgment, and I do believe that there will be some kind of crisis when we all come into the presence of God um, that will disclose what we've done. And the, the metaphor of fire is used often, but we think of fire as a torture device. But the Bible doesn't depict it as a torture device. It depicts it as a refining. It will burn away. The chaff will be burned away. If you don't think of yourself as either wheat or chaff, which is the kind of binary interpretation of that, but as having wheat and chaff in you, then when, when John the Baptist says the wheat will you know, the chaff will be burned, leaving the wheat. That doesn't have to be some people are wheat, some are chaff. Maybe it's the chaff and all of us will be burned away.
to conceive of a God who is going to torture people eternally who have never heard of Jesus. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. yeah. We won't, Satan, we're not going to talk about Satan. Uh, but that's another, no, I mean, in our words, that maybe that's 2.0. We'll, we'll have Satan, because that's an interesting word in Scripture, too. Um, yeah. Richard Rohr, tortured, it's very wrong. Uh, Richard Rohr makes the comment uh, that maybe, I love his image, that maybe the, the love of God is so great that even Satan will say, I am wrong. Oh. And God will say, come on in. Yeah. Yeah, who knows? Uh, what we do know is that God is love. How that works out, I mean, again, like, there's, uh, there's a beautiful, you know, we talk about, like, um, one more thing. William Paul Young, the guy who wrote The Shack, um, also has some other great stuff out there. Um, but he talks about how we understand wrath as purely punitive, as, you know, God's wrath is going to, whatever, burn us, whatever. Um, but he says, if you've ever, um, you know, kind of picture yourself as a child doing something dangerous, and then picture your mother or your father or whatever, your caretaker, coming at you to get you out of it, and what is on their face? Yeah, I mean, yeah, and he says, that is wrath. God's wrath is about saving us, not about punishing us. God's wrath is the crisis that we will all experience when we get into that pure presence of holiness and love. And, you know, William Paul Young says it will be a crisis for all of us. But what does that crisis produce? You know, eternal damnation or something else? Okay. We can talk about that, obviously, for a long time. Um, and there's, you know, I'll give you the full list of those scriptures and you can look at them yourself and you can decide if God gets what God wants. Um, but again, none of us know. Uh, I'm not saying I know. What I'm saying is the scriptural evidence, there's more for what we call universal salvation than there is for what the Calvinists call limited atonement. Okay. So, let's move on to faith. Um, I forgot to put scrap paper on the tables today, but just do this mentally, or if you have something to write down on, I want to do our word association and our definition one more time, because I think this one's going to be interesting. So, um, real quick, don't think what three words come to your head when you hear the word faith. And just shout them out. Belief. Belief. What else? Trust. Trust. Quick, don't think. Just what word? Long-suffering. Anything else? Is it most most people believe trust? Development. Development. Confidence. Confidence. Patience. Patience. Belief. Comfort. Okay. Good. Um, all right. And if you had to define faith, and now I'm um, kind of thinking what you think the Bible means by faith. If you had to define that now, uh, what would you what would you say, Greg? So Greg said from Hebrews chapter 11, um, 
Faith is being certain of what we hope for and sure of what we do not see. Faith goes beyond what we know, says Fred. Sitting in the chair, you assume will hold you. If you ever had the opposite experience, it's, it does take an act of faith to sit down on some chairs. Um, these are pretty good. Yes, yeah, stepping out on faith, it kind of implies that there, there's some action or movement involved. My favorite image is Harrison Ford in one of his movies. That is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade that she's talking about. <laughs> I know that scene very well. It's the third of the trials to get to the Holy Grail, and he looks and he doesn't see anything but a big chasm. Is it getting out of the boat? Getting out of the boat, is, and that's another good metaphor we like to use in this famous story of Peter um, walking towards Jesus on the water. Okay, good. Yes, Kadisha. So I'm noticing about this question that it says as you understand it right now. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a lot of ways that we may have been taught that of like what faith is, but that may not necessarily be our experience of what mm -hmm. faith is right now. So to me, I think I agree with many, much of what has been said. And I think for me right now, faith is a process of wrestling with God to understand, um, to understand or grasp a spiritual um a spiritual truth as it relates to a physical reality or as it speaks to our physical reality. Yeah, okay, cool. You hear people What do you think they mean by that? Sometimes they just don't they don't have a lot of confidence in life. Okay. We think of doubt as the opposite of faith, and we're going to talk in a minute about um, how we can maybe keep that, but redefine what doubt means. Uh, so we'll, we'll get there. I forgot to tell my joke, so let me tell my joke. <laughs> Once I saw this guy 
on a bridge about to jump, and I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. And I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yeah. And I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? And he said, a Christian. I said, oh, me too. Protestant or Catholic? And he says, Protestant. I said, oh, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. I said, oh, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, ah, oh, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, ah, oh, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region? And he said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. I said, ah, oh, cool, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Region Council 1912? And he said, Council 1912, and I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him off the bridge. <laughs> that joke was somehow voted the best religious joke of all time recently on the internet. That's how sick the internet sense of humor is. Um, but the, the point of that joke is, you know, do you believe in God is where it starts with. And it ends with such, a, you know, ridiculous minutia that we decide is what believe in God means or what faith means in the end that we you know, are willing to do all kinds of horrible stuff to each other. Um, so, let's talk about it. Woo. Spill my coffee. Alright, first thing I want to say to you all about faith is that it is more than intellectual assent to a set of maxims or beliefs. We often think of faith as, I mean, again, the word association was belief, and what we mean by belief is, I think certain things are true, right? That's kind of the common understanding. And we've also said some things that obviously mean more than that, but oftentimes when we see faith, our first thought is about kind of intellectual beliefs. Or, you know, believing in something that we don't know for sure is true, believing the illogical, that kind of thing. We, we think of head, head matters. Um, the, the Greek word for faith, and I'm going to talk about this word because I think it, it matters. So I'll ignore the Greek one. I don't think it is important for you, but I do think this word matters. Um, and the word, the word is pistis. That's the kind of root Greek word for faith. Um, interestingly, it's the same root word for what is translated as believe in Scripture. So believe is kind of the verb form of faith. So instead of saying, for those who faith in him, the Bible says for those who believe in him. But those words, pistis, is the root word of both of those. So faith and believe are really the same word, just different uh, parts of speech in, in, in the Bible. Um, Marcus Borg talks about four different kind of meanings of faith. Um, he talks about faith as assent, which we've talked about. That's one understanding of the word faith, intellectual assent to certain um, maxims. Um, but then he says that's kind of one of four. <laughs> and, and really for the scriptural authors, kind of low down on the totem pole, whereas for us, kind of post-enlightenment, post-reformation, that one has been elevated to crowd out all the others most of the time. Um, 
this is why, you know, we, in, in, a, in kind of attempt to defend our faith against the uh, advances of um, science and technology and scriptural interpretation and, you know, uh, we, we have kind of leaned heavily on this, you know, faith is believing what we don't know for sure. Um, believing what we don't know for sure. <laughs> like, you know, I believe in God even though I have no proof. And that's what we think faith means. Um, that's only one of several. Uh, we've talked about faith as trust. That's another one. Um, resting in God and God's promises. Sitting on the chair. Stepping out of the boat. Um, faith as vision. As seeing a new reality or God's reality uh, in the midst of this life. So sometimes we think of a, a person who's full of faith as somebody who can kind of see the world differently and live into that new reality. And then lastly, the one I want to kind of hone in on a bit today is faith as fidelity, loyalty to God. Um, there's a great book um, that this is the Media Center's copy, so we have it. It's called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Um, and I, I think that this word is, the, is what we need to add to our understanding of faith to really capture what the Bible means when it says faith. So um, most of us probably have at least those first two in our kind of understanding when we talk about faith. We, we think it means assent, but we also have that trust understanding, most of us, um, when we talk about faith. What we don't often think about is faith as allegiance or loyalty. But the word pistis means that. It has that attached to it. And sometimes it means just that, allegiance or loyalty. It doesn't mean any of the others. Um, and obviously we don't know for sure which one Paul meant when he said, you know, justified by grace through pistis. But I would argue that he does mean loyalty or allegiance or fidelity to Christ. Um, I'm going to read for you uh, just a couple of things in this book because... Um, the reason I think that is because we have other examples of this word from the same time that the biblical authors were writing. So here's one from uh, the book of 1 Maccabees, which we don't have in our canon um, as the type Protestants we are. Uh, some Protestants do. Um, all Catholics do. But it's the, the intertestamental books. For The Maccabees talk about... Uh, anyways, we don't need to get into it. But this is from that, from 1 Maccabees. And it says, uh, King Demetrius to the nation of the Jews, greetings. Since you have kept your agreement with us and have continued your friendship and have not sided with our enemies, we have heard of it and rejoiced. Now continue still to keep faith, pistis, with us, and we will repay you for good, with good for what you have done. So there's an example from the same period New Testament is being written, um, where it clearly means keep allegiance, keep loyalty with us. Um, here's another one from 3rd Maccabees. 
while these matters were being arranged, a hostile rumor was circulated against the Jewish nation by some who conspired to do them ill, a pretext being given by report that they hindered others from the observance of their customs. The Jews, however, continued to maintain goodwill and unswerving histus, loyalty, toward the dynasty. But because they worshiped God and conducted themselves by his law, they kept their separateness with respect to food. So this word faith, pistis at the time, had this meaning, allegiance, loyalty to something. Um, so I think when we kind of delete that meaning, we lose some of what the Bible is talking about. And we'll get to some of our passages we're more familiar with in a minute. But I think it's important to go outside of the Bible sometimes to try and figure out what a word means because we've read these scriptures a lot and have decided what we think they mean oftentimes. And so when we hear it in the context of our scriptures, sometimes we automatically go to what we have thought they mean instead of kind of hearing the word differently. Um, the same, the Latin word of the same word is credo. Does anyone, where, where have you heard that? Creed. Credo, or if you've ever, you know, if you're a musician, if you've ever sung or played a mass setting, it's one of the movements of the mass. Credo, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, etc. Credo, in unum Deum, I believe in one God. Um, and again, one of the main reasons why we Baptists have dispensed with the creeds, uh, or you know, Protestants kind of moved away from the creeds in the Reformation is because we think of them as I must believe these theological points or else I'm out. But what if credo doesn't mean that? Um, I would argue, and again, the, the word credo uh, is from the same root word as the Greek word for cardia. It means heart. I give my heart to is what credo means. And that's actually what believe means in scripture. It doesn't mean I think this. It means, and heart, another thing you have to know is that heart doesn't mean this organ. Um, for, the, for the ancient people, the heart was the gut, the center of your person, who you are, your will, and your desires. That's what heart meant. Um, so when they say I believe, it means I place my will and my heart and my allegiance in this. So we need to kind of get away from believe and faith as an intellectual thing and kind of recover the idea that it's about the center of who you are. Does that make sense? So if that's the case, if faith is not intellectual assent to certain maxims, but loyalty to Jesus or God above other things, then its opposite isn't doubt in the sense that we typically think of doubt. So like, you know, if you've ever uh, questioned whether God exists, for instance, or questioned um, you know, whatever, the, the physical resurrection, what, whatever kind of like intellectual belief we think we have to kind of hold on to despite evidence to, to have faith or to believe. Um, what if doubt isn't 
questioning those intellectual maxims, but living in disloyalty to God's way in the world. Does that make sense? Or even living as if there is no God, as if there will be no, if it, as if it doesn't matter what you do. So doubt, again, doesn't have to be intellectual either. Doubt can be about how you express your deepest kind of alignment, your deepest loyalties, if that makes sense. But doubt can be a visceral reaction to the case of thinking, I'm away from God, or God has withdrawn from me. Mm. Yeah, true. Yeah, you can turn it inwards as well. And, that, and that's what we, we talked a lot about that a little bit in the sin session where, you know, for a long time in Christian theology, we talked about sin from a male perspective um, because men were the theologians um, writing about their own experiences. And so, you know, our understanding of sin kind of centered on this idea of domination of others and pride and this kind of thing, um, which I... I said, you know, the feminist critique of that is, where does that leave women? Do women not sin? I mean, and the feminist argument is absolutely not. You know, it's a universal human experience, this alienation. So sin must be more than that. Um, and so to doubt your own, the image of God in you is also can be sin, can be called sin, because it's separate, it alienates you from yourself and from God and from other people to doubt that you are loved and that, that you, and it's, it, you know, I don't like the, you know, kind of, when we talk about sin, we like to kind of wag the finger at it, so I think that's not where we're, you know, the point of naming that as sin is not to say, like, don't do that. Um, we need to get away from that in general, but the point of naming it as sin is to name that separation experience of it, and to understand that salvation can be a restoration of that. Um, and so, yeah, doubt could also be living as if you are not created in the image of God, doubting that truth, right, in your life. Sure. Okay. Are we justified and or saved by faith, by works, or neither? My answer is yes. <laughs> um, so, salvation, and let's go back to our definition, experiencing the wholeness God intends in this life or the next, all that stuff we talked about last week, comes as a gift of God, what the Bible calls grace, Right? We didn't earn it for ourselves, it's grace. So, is it by faith or works? Well, no, it's God gave it to us, so it's neither. <laughs> At the same time, it comes to and through people who are loyal and give allegiance to the reign or the kingdom or what some uh, people call the kingdom to kind of eliminate the masculine language around kingdom of God. So experiencing that wholeness, that salvation that we talked about last week, God gives it to us for free. 
but it comes through people who are who have faith. And if we think of this new idea, who are loyal to God and God's way, because God's way brings that salvation into the world. Does that make sense? So, because of the way that we've misread the word faith, the faith works binary has become problematic, I would say. We know this because when we read the book of James, for instance, we're like, what is going on here? Because <laughs> this book is, does not agree with Paul, right? Um, but pistis faith has always entailed actions, works, if you want to call them that. Um, while Paul and others use the term works much more specifically than we are. So when we, see, when we see works, we think anything we do, right? I mean, that's my understanding of works. When, when Paul says, you know, it's not by works, but by faith, I think of works as anything I do to try to earn salvation. But when Paul says we're justified by our pistis, our faith, not our works, he's arguing that one cannot earn salvation by fulfilling the law. It's, it's a very specific meaning of the word works. It's shorthand for works of the law. He's specifically saying you cannot fulfill the law on your own. He's not saying the law is bad, but he's saying you can't do it. <laughs> so that is why there must be another way for us to accomplish Salvation and what God intends for us. That's Paul's argument. Can't be by works of the law because we know, even because I am the Pharisee of all Pharisees, right? That's his argument. I kept the law above and beyond what was required. But it can't be that. Um, he's not saying that one needs only a belief in an intellectual idea about who Jesus is in order to experience salvation. He is saying that people must be faithful to, or give allegiance to, or be loyal to Jesus, and then God will give us salvation by grace on account of Jesus. Does that make sense? Even though by ourselves we cannot earn it through fulfilling the law. Wouldn't it have to be a blend? Faith and spiritual works? A blend? Yeah, and that's what... And that's the argument of the book of James, right? You, you talk about faith, show me your works. Because there's no such thing as faith without works. Faith without works is dead, as James says. But what he means is, how can you be loyal to Christ and not show it? What does that even mean? It means nothing, right? Um, Keep thinking on the fact what we mean when we say keep the faith. Mm. That, that means hold on to that loyalty. Too. Yes. Keep, keep the, the faith. faith. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And some people do kind of 
go to this place of keep the faith, meaning like just ignore anything that tells you to believe something else, right, and keep the faith. But but it has a much more visceral and, and action-based understanding than that, I think. Keep the faith means stay loyal to God, um, persevere in that allegiance, right? All right, so I would propose to you all that faith means pledging allegiance to the reign of Christ in your heart and with your life, putting all of your trust in God's dream for the world, maintaining fidelity to Christ and Christ's way in your life and in the world. I think that kind of captures a bigger and a more accurate understanding of what scripture means when it says faith. Because this can also mean kind of, I think God is real. You know, in that purely intellectual sense. But that is not even close to the full definition of faith. So what, what does a life of faith look like? And we don't have time to read all of these. Um, but the first thing I would say is, this is why we study the life of Jesus. Because um, there's a, there's a, I won't bore you with all the details, but there's an argument between New Testament theologians about some of the times that Paul says faith and what we translate as faith in Jesus that actually means the faith of Jesus. Jesus' faith saves us. Not faith in Jesus, but Jesus' faith. Um, and it's not every time, but it's uh, some of the times Paul says that he means the faith of Jesus. Jesus is, as Hebrews says, the pioneer and perfecter of this loyalty to God. Jesus lived in such a way that was 100% allegiant to God and God's vision for the world. He had no concern for anybody else's understanding for how he should live and interact with people. And that is what we mean by the faith of Jesus. Jesus was faithful. He was our example of what it means to live faithfully. Um, the, the Bible also is big on Abraham. Uh, the New Testament talks about Abraham all the time as the kind of pi the, not the pioneer, not those like not in those words, but as the kind of the first example of someone who lived by faith. Um, and obviously, it couldn't have meant belief in certain things because guess what? There weren't any things. There were no scriptures. <laughs> there was nothing. But Abraham's own experience of Yahweh. And he did what? Left his homeland. Whoop! Sorry. <laughs> Left his homeland and went because God told him to. He allegedly walked his son to a mountain to sacrifice him because God told him to. <laughs> I mean, nuts! Right, right, and that's, what, that's why the scriptures say Abraham was justified, and Paul talks about this, not by his works, because guess what? He got it wrong, right? Got it wrong with Hagar, way wrong. 
So it wasn't by his works, it was by his faith, his loyalty, his allegiance to God above the idols of his homeland and above anything else in his life. That's Genesis 15, 6, by the way, is justification by faith. So that's not a new concept for the New Testament. It says in Genesis 15, 6, in the first book of the Bible, that Abraham was justified by his faith. Um, so you all know the Hebrews 11 passage pretty well, I think, the, the Hall of Fame. Um, it begins with what Greg read. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Conviction of things not seen, or some some of the different translations say different things. Um, and again, we often think of that things hoped for and things not seen as these kind of intellectual maxims. But what if it is that we hope for the reign of God? We cannot see it. We can't see all the time that God is in charge, that Christ sits at the, on the throne. Right? I mean, I think we can agree that that is not always clear. <laughs> in the world, but faith, allegiance to God, is living as if those things are true. And then it goes on to list a bunch of examples of what faith, by faith, or in faith, this person did this. In faith, this person did this. And some of those don't fit with the other definition of faith at all. By faith, Rahab, you know, let in the Israeli spies. What does that mean? It means by loyalty to God and God's way, Rahab did this. There's also some really weird stuff in there like that we cut out from the lectionary. But by faith, Joseph predicted the exodus and gave directions that his bones be buried in the process. <laughs> weird stuff like that. Um, but read that Hebrews 11 again through 12 too. It kind of maybe substitute this definition and maybe read Romans 3 through 5 again and think about it as this and see if it doesn't kind of change the way you see those passages. Alright. I have to go. We will finish next week. Um, maybe circle back around to one or two things from this and then move on to uh, the word justice. What does the Bible mean when it says that? All right. Thank you all.